the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And... Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to part two of our Sake on Air special, focusing on the impact of COVID-19 on the sake industry here domestically in Japan and how that impact is rippling across the seas to affect international markets as well. My name is Justin Potts, and for part two, I'm joined by several of our regular hosts, including John Gauntner, Sebastian Lemoyne, and Christopher Pellegrini. As I mentioned at the top of the recording for part one, this particular recording is more discussion-based and anecdotal to our own experiences, with us sharing our insights from over the past several months. If you haven't yet checked out part one, I recommend doing so as it will help to provide a bit of a base for some of the things that we discuss here. While all of us here in Japan are generally free to roam about at this point, this conversation took place online with John joining us from the US where he's been grounded since the early days of all of this. Christopher and Sebastian are joining us from their respective locations in the heart of the Tokyo metropolis. And I'm joining from my home in the Chiba countryside where I've largely stayed close to over the past few months. For this conversation, do pour yourself a glass or two of sake or sochu and shochu and go ahead and settle in with us. After the show, we'd love to hear our listeners' experiences and insights from across the globe. So do feel free to reach out to us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at, at sakeonair, or do send us an email at questions at sakeonair.com. With that, let's go ahead and dive in. Here we are once again with one more episode of Sake on Air, the world's one and only podcast dedicated to Japan's iconic beverages of sake and shochu. My name is Justin Potts, uh, one of your regular hosts here on the show. And this week I am joined by three other of our regular uh, hosts here. Not next to me this time, in front of me in a very digital form, I have Mr. John Gauntner. John, how are you doing this evening where you're at? I am doing well in a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. So Cleveland, Ohio. We we were able to to kind of patch you into this now that we're now that we're not our hand isn't forced by space and time. We can just pull you out of the ether from from anywhere now. So I didn't know I was embedded in ether, but that's <laughs> And I got Christopher Pellegrini. How are you doing, sir? Good. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. It's hot. It's hot. Aside it from hot. aside yeah, from West... super sweaty, all this. All this. Oh yeah, three well. three undershirts a day without fail. Yep. But I'm in Western Tokyo, um, suburbs of downtown. So. And Sebastian Lemoine tuning in from uh, the 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 deep forests of someplace. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, it's a digital image um, because I'm in the center of town in Tokyo and okay. surrounded by asphalt. So I put my Hawaiian shirt on, <laughs> turn the aircon, and and trying to stay cool. How's that working out? Yeah, I mean, very well actually. I just need probably one more glass. Yeah, <laughs> let's go around the table. Uh, John, your situation is a little bit different from the three of us sitting here and that you flew to the US that resulted in you being in the US for the duration right, of all right. of this. You know, just like the rest of the world, we've all been using the beautiful magic of the internet to, to make things happen. Um, but your physical um, 
locale has, um, I imagine, impacted your your experience a little bit as well too. Um, you want to quite a bit, yeah. yeah sure. You want to talk a little so, bit about sort of what that looked like. I came to the United States on March seventh. And it was just a routine trip. However, I was not unaware of everything that was happening to COVID. And in truth, I was actually quite scared that while I was in the air, the president of the United States would make a decision that nobody enters the U.S. and something would happen. My kids have been in the United States for the last four or five years with my wife to go to school here. And so I come back as often as I can. Uh, and so it was just a routine trip. And uh Soon after that, COVID just exploded, and I knew I wasn't going anywhere soon. That was March. It is now August, and I've been here the whole time. Usually, I would have made maybe three or four trips between Japan and the United States between now and then. Um, for those that do not know, I do a lot of things in the sake industry. I do do a lot of ed education efforts, but also I run an export company in Japan. So I export sake to the United States. And I have been able to gather a lot of information, of course, through our importer, a company called Vine Connections, which is in Sausalito, Sausalito California, um, and have learned a lot about how things are, have been unfolding since all of this. Basically, nobody's going out to eat. In other words, pretty much in many places in the United States, eating out restaurants were just shut down completely. You know, and alcoholic beverages were considered a what's the word what do they call that a uh, at the primary industry so they're allowed to sell alcohol which is good but restaurants are shut down and this has a lot of effects on what we're trying to do with sake in other words the truth is that most sake is consumed in restaurants uh so that when restaurants shut down we're getting hammered we would like more sake to be consumed through retail and that's growing but overall premium sake is going to drop a bit has dropped a bit will continue to be low because restaurants are not as strong in terms of sales as they have been. Yeah, you're definitely you're not going to be able to cover all of those sales through retail immediately, right? That transition doesn't happen overnight. But it's been interesting. Some folks, some importers or distributors I've talked to in the U.S. I've had some people, that, and they and they kind of didn't even expect it as well as that. You've had some sort of you know local high end you know liquor shops or wine stores or places that were kind of sleeping on their sake orders, all of a sudden they were getting orders. In truth, that's the silver lining of what has happened, actually. And I, and I am hesitant to speak too strongly about the silver lining of, of what's happening because it's been so devastating to every aspect of our life. However, you have people that would like spend hundreds of dollars in a bottle of sake at a restaurant, and now they can't get it because they can't go to the restaurant. But they can get it for like a quarter of the price <laughs> at the local retailer, which helps them survive, which helps, you know, sake producers overseas survive and every member of the channel to get it to them survive. Um, and sake retail sales have really, really grown very, very well. I'm so that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it kind of mirrors some things that I've heard from smaller wholesalers and distributors in, in Japan as well. And that, especially when, with regards to pricing and sort of people's awareness around pricing. You know, in Japan, people obviously, in general, they understand what things cost. You know, sake is readily available. But even if you understand it, if you're not going out and buying sake to drink at home on a regular basis, you're not super cognizant as to that price gap between what you're paying to go out, you know, and have a glass at a restaurant versus what it costs to get a, buy a bottle. 
and they're yeah, realizing right. that, gosh, that, you know, I, for what it cost me for two glasses of sake, I can buy, you know, a, a bottle or two, you know, and, right. and have that at home. And, you know, their, their consumption patterns probably aren't going to translate you know, at home to the same as what they would consume, you know, dining out. To me, what's significant about that is if we really want sake to catch on overseas, we can't just have people buying it at restaurants. It won't grow that well only in that sector. We need people to at home when they sit down with meatloaf <laughs> or homemade sushi or whatever the hell they're drinking or eating at home that I can enjoy sake here too. And so they buy a bottle of sake to bring home to have what they're enjoying for dinner at home. That's what sake is going to take off. Yeah. Chris. Uh, John, I just wanted to ask you about a relatively new distribution channel that's been really kind of liberal, liberated by this whole situation in the United States and elsewhere around the world, I'm sure. But the the online sales of of alcohol in general, sake in, in particular, and I'm talking about things like Drizzly and other services and just the liberation of allowing alcohol mm -hmm. to cross state lines a little bit more freely. Actually, Can, Chris, there's um, no liberation whatsoever. Nothing has changed. There is no liberation whatsoever. Nothing has changed. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. No, no, but what you do have like is those Drizzly. companies making the most of it now. The main sake importers and retailers have all pretty much done their best to shift towards that. Okay. Um, there's only been a couple that were making that as their main gig anyway. And certainly they're doing extremely well. But others that were just doing traditional retail and have shifted to at the online sales are also doing very, very well. But nothing's changed in terms of laws. Not at all. Yeah. Just willingness to deal with the hassles. Yeah. <laughs> and sure. it's very well, positive. It's, it's, it's and and well, that's, that's true in Japan. It's sort of maybe the laws haven't changed, but it's for forced people to have to put up with you know, things that they were reluctant to do before, if in order to open up those channels, they're kind of forced to have to do it. And, but then once you've done it, you realize, oh, it can be done. One thing I wanted to ask you about, though, too, is aside from very small boutique um, distributors that are just doing sake, a lot of them, you know, sake is a much smaller, it's a small part of their larger por portfolio. And their bread and butter is wine or it's beer, or it's spirits, or these other things, how do you get them to choose sake, or to emphasize sake? There's, have you know, had any troubles with that, or how has sort of the response been with regards to getting people to be on board with, you know, continuing with sake? It's a complicated question, as you probably imagined before you ask it, right? And those companies are the ones that were most susceptible to losses when the economy dropped. Yeah. And amongst those companies, many just said, we're done. You're all laid off. Will they rehire? Who am I to know? I, I don't know, right? So in other words, those that are most committed were the ones that suffered the most. There's others that were, for example, importing a lot of sake, but also Japanese foodstuffs or what's the word? Plates, lanterns, things like that. And they had, you know, a supporting income that they could like, we'll weather this out somehow. And bigger companies can always, bigger companies can always weather things out better. Um, and then there's other companies that were, for example, sake, but also wine. 
again, you've got another supporting income stream. You know what I mean? And everybody believes in sake. (laughs) There is nobody that does not believe in sake, right? They all have economics. They all have bills to pay. However, I'm sure everybody that's importing is like, all right, there's a future in this. I'm sticking around for this. Yeah. Um, and how they'll get through it will vary from company to company. Yeah. And I, and I, that's, I guess, for me, just sort of what I see is a very positive takeaway is that people, it seems, have been really believing in sake. But Chris, Shochu, uh, it's probably worth noting that sort of, you know, before this, that Kyushu's situation is a little bit unique at the moment and that they're sort of up against a whole nother uh, situation here at the moment. You want to kind of brief folks on what's going on there? I don't know how much it's hit international news or how much that's getting picked up on, but it's definitely. Yeah, it seems like it hasn't so much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The sky opened and a whole lot of water fell in July. There are now some distilleries, particularly in Kumamoto, in Hitoyoshi City, which is the home of Kumajochu, the uh, the GI from uh, for rice shochu, and a couple of those businesses may never reappear. Um, they were literally wiped off the map uh, by the flooding of the Kuma River. So it's been a it's been a double whammy for a lot of these businesses and even more frustrating for some, for people like us, for people who are huge fans and proponents of the industry, we can't go down there to help. There's been a very, very strict limitation on the volunteers that are allowed into the city. And so it's mostly been moral support from afar. It also has been a situation where you can donate funds. You can donate provisions as well. If if you know somebody who is collecting such items, uh, there, the Kumamoto government does have a disaster relief fund that you can do- donate directly to, and maybe, maybe we can put that in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. But it's been a real serious challenge for the industry, and so that's what everybody's kind of been preoccupied with. It wasn't just Kumamoto as well, Fukuoka, the Jojima area, area which also has some phenomenal sake breweries in it, mm. got hit pretty hard with water. Parts of Oita were slammed. Uh, the Osumihanto, the eastern leg of Kagoshima, got a lot of water. It was just a wild, wild July. And so, yeah, that's been a challenge, obviously. It's a double whammy, as I said before. Having the whole COVID thing in the background of all this has put so many limitations on what can be done. Because a lot of yeah. the people that are wanting to volunteer were actually people from outside of you know, maybe there are homes there, there are families there. They were saying about 70 to 80% of people I've talked to of the people that are actually getting volunteer, you know, requests and things like that from are people from outside the region. However, they're not in a position to take those people on. So they're really, it's really slowing down kind of the efforts is what it sounds like. It's heartbreaking. It really is. And I, I don't want to put too much of a damper on this, but it's really frustrating to see your friends, you know, yeah suffering and not being able to go and lend a hand and it's like an aquarium or something we're just looking in there's something that we can see that something bad is happening we just can't get in there so um that's a big challenge uh for the industry as a whole and i think we're going to see there are going to be some bankruptcies i think and there's already talk of that it's an incredibly tenacious strong never say die industry but if this continues, you know, losses of, you know, 30, 50, 70, 80%, you know, sales, you know, month on month, quarter upon quarter, 
Um, and then from here on out, having to sit on stock and having to, you know, just not being able to find outlets for this stuff. I've had right. a number of, you know, places say, you know, it's entirely reasonable to think that several hundred producers could disappear. It's not going to happen right away. It's not going to happen right. tomorrow. It's not going to happen this year, but in sort of the fallout from this over the next, you know, kind of year, two years, three years out, um, if we're not able to get product into, you know, different, you know, channels because um, they're kind of going to be forced to, they're going to be forced to scale back. Um, mm -hmm. which kind of leads us into kind of another topic we want to talk about is that the sort of looking at kind of the long-term game. This isn't a matter of just being able to sell product right now. This also very much ties into um, what product and how much of that product are you going to make in the next coming year, which means how much rice are you going to source and from where and how and how that's going to play out. And that has really become sort of the underbelly of a lot of the situation that doesn't necessarily that conversation doesn't get to the surface so much as a lot of the focus becomes on restaurants and retail and those cons very consumer facing, you know, activities, right. Right, you know, right, right. but at the end of the day, what, you know, what's happening is you're having, you know, you've got producers that are sitting on a whole lot of product um, that they were planning on putting to market that wasn't designed to be sat on. Um, this sort of happened this all happened right at the time when brewers were having to make the choice as to how much rice are we going to purchase and from where next brewing season. Um, so they were, you know, faced with the choice of having to either a say, sorry, we're not, we're going to cut 30% or we're going to cut or whatever of what we're going to buy or it's we're going to buy it or we're going to buy it all seedlings. and we'll take the risk. Huh? And sorry for the fact that you've started the seedlings. Yeah, right? exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So these things were sort of already underway. Um, so there, a lot of breweries were facing the difficult position of, do we take the risk? We're already, our sales are way down. Um, we're already sitting on heaps of product that we don't know how we're going to move. Um, are we going to, we're dependent on these farmers that are making the rice for us. Are we going to eat that cost and buy everything that we were planning to purchase you know, and then figure out hopefully how we can deal with that in the next, you know, year, how we're going to move that product and, you know, the product that we're going to make in the coming brewing season, or are we going to say, you know, sorry, you've taken good care of us for the last however long, but no, we're only going to buy, way. we're only going to buy half of, you know, the rice, <laughs> you know, but that was, that was the, that was the kind of the ultimatum that, you know, breweries were faced with right at the beginning of these conversations. Yeah, and rice right farmers around. too, of course. Yeah. Yep. I mean, this is a conversation go on for three more episodes. Yep, and exactly. Yeah. It's a huge hassle, right? It's huge. So in other words, brewers have no idea. All right. They have an idea. Things sell this well. I'll order in December for next year. Right. And then something like this happens. Well, what are they going to do? They have no, there's, there's no recourse. They have no choice, but what are the farmers going to do? Right. I mean, this is a huge difference between the the, uh, the wine industry, right? You own your own vineyards, you know what you're going to grow. You you make what you grow. If you don't grow enough grapes, you don't make any more any more wine. Uh, you can buy juice, of course, in that industry, but holy mackerel, the sake industry is so intricately connected with the uh, the rice growing industry, and it's just not a simple simple at all. What's the word? Yeah, there's no, it's not like you, you pull this thread and every, you, you pull this string and everything just clicks together. It's, there's no, so no many way. No way. inner working parts that are, you know, deeply seated 
it's challenging know? for everybody involved. It really, really is. Yeah, yeah. and I, and I guess and that's you know and it, not to put you know a doom and gloom sort of you know outlook on it, but just I think it's something that people should be aware of, you know, and that you yeah. know the, the, no, as I was saying, kind of the exactly. that, you need to understand that the, the the flow of the raw materials. Yep. Absolutely. Anybody that understands wine knows the flow of the raw materials. Yep. You need to understand that if you want to understand sake and appreciate sake. Yep. And the more you understand it, the more you'll appreciate it. That's why we should convey this, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And Ready? so going forward, you know, going forward, you know, on to put, you know, kind of a, again, a positive spin on it is that with that awareness, you know, how are, what sort of approach are we going to take to sales and communication and, and things like that down the road, you know, as, as an industry, because that's something that we're going to be up against. This isn't a problem that it's also going to, I don't want to say a problem. It's not a situation that's going to um, uh, alleviate itself. itself. Own, yeah. Right? yeah um, right. Just because of COVID, even if this all goes away in six months, you know, no. this, this network it's is still, is here. still existing. Right. You know, so yes, of course, of course, of course. Know, so, I mean, and again, it's such a complicated thing because it's tied in with, 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 with just growing rice in general in Japan, which is again, another conversation for another YouTube channel. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but you absolutely. know, it could be its own so show. You, you've got people that want to grow rice and, and do well with that. And they also need to economically survive. And it's easier for them to grow stuff that will sell well, which usually is not sake rice, usually. And then those that will commit the sake rice have to be sure that it's going to sell. And all of a sudden, you've got a situation where like, well, we're not selling so much sake, so we're not going to order as much rice. And then the next year, they're like, well, if you're not going to order as much sake rice, we're not going to grow as much. And they'll grow table rice instead. And all of a sudden you have a shortage and that leads to higher prices, which leads to higher prices for us, which leads to effects in demand. And it's like complicated. Yeah. yeah. John, I think it would be quite useful for our listeners to um, summarize again uh, how the COVID timing um, <clears throat> hit the timing for yeah. rice orders and planting, I mean, yeah. seeding and, and planting. So basically rice is planted in, there's various varieties of rice, but rice is planted between April and June and harvested between June, I'm sorry, August and uh, October. October or so. Yeah. Usually sake rice is planted later and harvested later. However, you know, farmers got to plant stuff, right? So usually, right at the sake breweries will order rice in November or so to be planted the next April or so, to be harvested the next October or so, to be pruned right after that. <laughs> so it calls for major, major, major foresight, right? How much am I selling this year? Where's the market going? You know, how am I going to do the, you know, how, what, what do I have that's going to help me sell more next year or not? It's complicated and it's a massively huge decision for all Kuramoto, for all brewers. And everybody says, hey, things are cool, right? I'll base it all on these decisions and I'll plant at the, I'll, I'll order this much in November for next year. And then COVID hit. And what are you going to do, right? Orders are gonna, just going to drop. There's no doubt about it. However, the rice farmer's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You gave us this order. We created seedlings. We bought seeds. We planted it. Now what do you want us to do, right? And it was, it's, it's a big deal. And again, everybody, nobody's against each other. Everybody wants to help everybody else survive and do well. And so the rice farmer's like, we're not going to screw you, but what are we supposed to do? And so there was a lot of 
discussion and a lot of what's the word that they'll compromise between sake brewers and rice farmers and they did their best um and there were losses on both sides on both sides there were losses there were rice producing farmers that says we'll eat this and there were at the sake brewing organizations says, we'll eat this and they're going to make it through this however when next year comes around it's like all right the risk factor is higher right am i actually going to take more risks to grow your sake rice knowing something else could happen probably not maybe i'll just grow table rice which will allow me to survive more easily so nobody knows what's going to happen it's a very complicated issue and it's not easy to switch back after that no no it isn't no of course not i mean you switch the soil the soil doesn't cooperate i mean there's a million things it's just you just can't switch from sake rice to table rice so easily not at all no way it's it's not that easy at all this is just kind of it all came at I mean, there would never be a good time for something no, like no, this to no. happen. It, but it was the perfect time, storm. Timing-wise, it really was the perfect storm where it basically put everybody in having to make a really difficult decision up front. It was sort of who's going to kind of take the brunt of this immediately. And then... Everybody had to out. take the leap. They had to just... You know, and and again, faith. the government's doing their best. In other words, you've got the Ministry of uh, Forestry and Fisheries and you've got the Ministry of Taxation. One's in charge of rice. The other is in charge of sake. They both want to do well, right? But they're different ministries. And so they're cooperating. They're doing their best. But, you know, there's so many difficult decisions to make on every front that it's very challenging for the government to support everybody that needs to be supported. And that's been sort of something that's interesting and unique to, I don't say unique to, but for the sake industry, all those ties, the, the way that that's all sort of held together in a situation like this, you don't right. see many people just sort of like cut and run. Cause I think a lot of people are realizing, you know, how, how many, how many links in the chain are actually tied together that they actually didn't see, you know, up until now, you know, um, and that's not unique to sake, you know? And so if we can sort of pos not position sake, but, you know, shine a light on sake and like, look, it actually comes with its own, you know, unique challenges. Um, from well i think there. i think yep. to i don't know maybe this is maybe i'm jumping the gun here a little yep. bit but i think one thing that's obvious after what we've talked about thus far is that if you want to help drink more sake and drink yeah. more shochu yep. i mean because they you just keep keep the gears turning in yep. your own way yep it's, it's yeah. it, it isn't much more complicated than that yeah totally chris totally. we haven't finished the conversation about rice but what about Imo and Mugi and all the raw materials involved in shochu production. Yeah, great. It's I mean it was it's exactly the same type of cadence. Um, the Mugi, the Mugi distilling season is earlier, um, so they're kind of already underway. But the the sweet potato season matches up kind of nicely with the rice season, so there's a lot of foresight that's necessary, and rice lives and grows many times in a in a patty with a lot of water if you do that to a to a sweet potato field you get a very unhappy set of vegetables so what ends up happening in really really heavy rain years and this is covid notwithstanding but when you get a ton of water especially early in the growing season you tend to get really small sweet potatoes 
and you tend to get sweet potatoes with a kind of odd not odd I, I shouldn't say odd but for me it was a little bit odd I'm getting used to it it has a lychee type of accent to it and I think people have really come around to that flavor profile you're actually seeing people doing it intentionally these days but for the longest time that I can remember uh, these lychee flavors in sweet potato shochu were an indication that wow that was a really heavy rain year so uh, the amount of water is going to create some interesting issues for some people there could be a bit of a pinch in terms of getting uh, the type the amount and the variety of sweet potato that they need now there's a lot more happening with um, long agings of sweet potatoes or extended aging there's a lot of frozen sweet potatoes that are used especially in the medium and larger distilleries medium-sized and larger sized distilleries i should say uh, but yes, moving forward, if you take, if you extrapolate into the future by a year as we were doing with rice before, this could cause some farmers to make decisions that safeguard their long-term survival in terms of what they know they can have a market for. And, uh, and it would have a ripple effect. It would have a, a spiraling effect on everybody involved that could create situations where more and more distilleries can't get the quantity of sweet potato that they need and so on and so forth now having said that the one uh, we have a, a almost industry-wide safety net that the sake industry doesn't necessarily enjoy and that is the fact that shochu is you know much more commonly aged so there are distilleries that are sitting on stock and that's going to help cushion the blow of any disruptions to the supply chain vis-a-vis -vis the agricultural products that are involved um, so if i can if i can just i i i tend to it's my own biases but i tend yeah, to talk sure. a little bit too much about sweet potato shochu so yeah. i should probably talk about a couple other things um in the barley sector of the industry most barley used mm -hmm. in the in the barley shochu industry is actually imported so there is you know maybe there's that's another cushion all right. Now, of course, that that just it's another pain point that becomes an international pain point in terms of sourcing your raw materials. But uh, at least the barley hasn't been affected by the flooding necessarily, um, at least not that I'm aware. And then the awamori industry uses almost ex exclusively Thai rice. So, so indica mai, which is also imported. And so that's that's a, a, another level of risk. But at least at this point in time, it doesn't seem that it's directly affecting the industry. Now, could there be that backwards ripple effect from the from the supply, the shochu and awamori makers holding off or or not ordering quite as much of the raw materials that they need for next mm -hmm. season? That certainly could happen, and that would enact a similar domino effect across the industry. Every and with the ultimate um, negative point of of the product per, potentially becoming more expensive for the end user. And that's interesting. So depending on that's having sort of Aomori and Shochu and Sake sort of all together and sort of taking a bird's eye view of all those, it's interesting. And sort of with the, the general landscape, it's interesting that you've seen so many when you're looking at sort of the, what's the word? The, uh, not the food chain. That's like what things uh, people eat, but the, uh, Supply the, chain? Supply chain, yes, sorry. <laughs> Big word. Remember that <laughs> one. <laughs> the, uh, when you're looking at you know, parts of the supply chain, you've had so many, lots of aspects of the, 
a lot of different industries wake up to the fact that, wow, we need to have more control at, over what we can make, source, and then purchase locally. Whereas at the same time, you've got things like, you know, sake, we actually has a lot of control over to what they, you know, it's essentially built upon, you know, making and purchasing locally. However, because of the nature of the situation, they actually got hit really, really hard. Whereas, you know, something like Awamori, the fact that they were, that they're sourcing internationally has, at least at this point in time, might actually in the long term prove to be, you know, a blessing. You know, it's hard to say how these things will, you know, will play out. And it's not that one's right really or wrong is. or better or worse, but in different contexts and sort of how those supply chains work. Um, and just sort of the nature of the agricultural product and everything. It's not, it's not a simple answer of we bring it closer to home or we, you know, we ship it overseas, you know, or we, uh, it's sort of in the scheme of each of those situations, what's, what's going to be, what's, how, how do you, how do you, avert, how yeah. do you avert risk? You know? Yeah. There's no silver bullet in other words. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. Absolutely. Sebastian. Yes, sir. I, I, I wanted to hear, I just wanted to hear your voice because I hadn't. I want <laughs> to make sure you're still alive. Actually, <laughs> you haven't been drug off into the forest or. No, no, I mean, I mean Justin sent me several. I'm with you. My, yeah. <laughs> I sent you several <laughs> what? Text saying, is Sebastian actually alive? <laughs> yeah. That was a joke. You didn't send me <laughs> No. Um, so we've talked a little bit sort of about the rice and get, you know, the product, the, you know, distribution, supply chain, some of that stuff. A big thing that the sake industry as a whole was really making a push for, especially leading up to 2020 and the Olympics that were supposed to happen this year and all those other things, tourism, getting people into the same physical spaces. There was such a huge, huge push for that, especially this year, um, not just for sake, but, you know, for the tourism industry as a whole, for food. For a lot of places and a lot of you know areas of the industry where there was just so much investment on so many levels, and that just wiped out. Uh, absolutely, I mean, the a lot of foreigners still need to discover sake, and so the mandate is to get people to experience the drink, but better to. Uh, go and meet the people, the people who brew sake. And um, you achieve that through, uh, as you mentioned, education events, indication, we tasting events and, uh, and tourism. Uh, and, and we had to change our routine, as John was saying earlier today. Uh, I think that's a very important uh, word as well, a key word. Um, and as a result of that, I've actually seen a number of um, initiatives and, and, and very much enjoyed some of these uh, initiatives. And uh, I mean, we've had to move a lot of business online. I have participated to a number of uh, online sessions taking place, uh, organized by people in Australia, like, like Simon or um, people in the US, um, with Jamie or, or in France, uh, with Xavier and, and all the people who make these events and make them possible. And I found 
really exciting the way how this crisis has managed to let online, but has managed to let um, people in other countries and other regions penetrate into breweries, penetrate into uh, family homes of, uh, of sake brewers. Um, and I see that a very exciting development. And the reason why I'm saying that is because um, I think that when you create a personal, um, a, a, a personal relation with a person, of course, but with a story, you create a stronger binding. Is that how, how you can say it? A stronger meaning, a longer term and, and more resilient. And, and that I think is true very much for, for the products as well. But on the other hand, of course, uh, most of the breweries have had to uh, interrupt uh, their brewery visits. And I think it means having less opportunities to get their clients or, or visiting clients only to or visiting customers only to 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 taste their products and get direct feedback and uh, and seasonal products in particular as you say as are uh, one of the of the big trends that we've seen in the industry uh, recently and so um, I guess it must have been quite frustrating. It must be still quite frustrating not to be able to do that. Yeah, but you know, as really as you said, those um, shifting things online. You know, as with the rest of the world and everything else, everything has gone online. <laughs> all the entire world and then some has all of a sudden got online. Pretty much every function of our lives um, that we didn't even imagine being online has become online so, in yeah. some capacity now. You know, for better or for worse, and that's so that's kind of where we're at. Um, one of my, on the positive side, the positive takeaways from that is, I, I, it's probably safe to say that the sake shochu industries, for the most part, aren't super high tech. Conversations tend to take a while as regards to setting up appointments and you know getting things to happen. However, um, with the current situation, um, all of a sudden, you know, a meeting or a conversation that maybe would have taken weeks or months to set up that would have required a lot of people to move in, you know, to a physical place, all of a sudden, 48 hours later, people are more than happy to connect and have that conversation or to do that. So that has really, really pushed not just brewers, but distributors, um, restaurants, really opened up these channels for not just connecting with consumers, but on the B2B side as well, too. A lot of the internet focus you know, tends to be, you know, consumer centric or consumer focused, get information to consumers, but also being able to just open up and have those conversations um, quickly and being able to get, you know, straight to very real conversations. Um, this has definitely inspired speed and a willingness to engage with tech-based tools, I guess. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of innovation, definitely. Yeah. That's uh, across the board. Whereas I'm, I'm, I'm curious, how has, I imagine everybody's communication and work business outlook has shifted online quite a bit um, over the past few months. Um, Chris, I know you're, you're doing Instagram lives on a regular basis. Um, you've been doing talks and sessions and education and stuff. How has, how has sort of that, that experience been for you? And what do you, what do you, what do you 
what are you excited about with regards to that? And are, are there any challenges that you're starting to butt up against? Well, the challenge, I guess the big challenge was that, um, as you're aware, my partners and I had a retail shop in Fukuoka that we had to close uh, because of this entire experience. We, it was a, essentially a standing bar and it was just a situation where we didn't feel safe about it. We weren't forced to close, um, but we just kind of took the initiative and said, okay, this is just not safe. We can't keep our staff safe. We're just not doing it this way anymore. So we, we had to shift online. So to your point, yes, things have really moved online. Now you can't really move a standing bar online. That doesn't really work so easily. You can have online nomikai, which we've all probably participated in multiple times, but um, that business, that part of the business no longer exists. So we've switched to more of an online B2B uh, existence and we're still figuring out what that means for us. And we're still, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're into HTML and CSS and teaching yourself how to, how to really style websites the, the proper way and proper encryption so that people can enter credit card details to make orders and these sorts of things. So it's been a phenomenal learning experience and I'm sure that everybody has a similar story as far as communicating directly with com consumers that yeah, the Instagram live has been a lot of fun and we've been fortunate to interview a, a number of really interesting people who have their own way of dealing with the, the punches that are being thrown their way and everybody's, everybody's doing it. And so it's been exciting to get a lot of those stories in the same environment, in the same, com you know, get all, just notice that everybody's trying to move in the same direction and seeing that there are a lot of synergies that people didn't realize before. And there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot of, oh, geez, I didn't realize maybe we can work together on this. That's been a lot of fun to see. And I think that at least, uh, I, I don't think there's any other way to spin it. There's been a very positive expansion of my own personal and professional networks and spheres that have resulted from these very, very difficult times. Justin, yeah, I'm gonna have to politely bow out of the meeting. Okay. Uh, okay. I got yeah. yeah. It's uh, ten thirty. <laughs> yeah, yep. Fair enough, gentlemen. Every, Fair it's enough. Great stuff, all of you. Let's keep in touch. We'll do. Yoroshiku. Everybody, yeah. be well. I'll talk yeah. to you guys yeah. also. Take, take care over there. Thank you, John. All right, and we'll and we'll see you back on the island here. And I'll be there in like ten days. Cool, cool. Once you get oh, out of once you get out of quarantine, let's let's grab a drink. Right, 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 right. We'll, <laughs> we'll be in self quarantine yeah. in uh, Kamakura for two weeks. So, right, right. I'd like to say come by, but I can't say that. So. I I hear. You. Now, once <laughs> once once the dust settles on that on that quarantine, let's let's figure out a way we can September seventh or so. So, yeah, everybody, will all be in touch. Good night. Right, Thanks we'll for having me. Right. Night, John. Have a good night, John. Bye, John. I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> yeah, you, you you wanted to talk about um, licenses. Yeah, uh, yeah short-term yeah, yeah. licenses. Yeah, that sort of. Oh. I guess yeah, that sort of dovetails into what you were talking about yeah. there a little bit, Chris. Um, yeah. And sort of you were talking about you know doing B to B on there. That seems to be the idea of how do we get product to the only outlet where people can actually purchase it. Right. Um, yep. And so for, as you're saying, as there wasn't a quote unquote official lockdown here, you know, even though a lot of places were forced to curtail their hours, restaurants and bars were able to stay open for business. Um, they were. However, 
you know, people, you know, they're limiting the number of people into the restaurants or into the bars, social distancing, they're taking all these measures. Um, there's no way in a, you know, in a place that normally seats 50 people um, and you're used to having groups of people getting together, all of a sudden you're cutting that number in half or a third and you're only, you know, allowing groups of, you know, two or three or something like that at max, you know, mm -hmm. and you're never going to get the same amount of alcohol consumption. Yeah, plus right? people just didn't want to, to go there. Right, they're not comfortable. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. Which is and I think some, 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 re uh, some restaurants and bars are taking this opportunity, and this is just what I've seen, um, are taking the opportunity to kind of trim some of the fat on their, on their menus. And maybe, maybe the products that I'm trying to sell are considered fat, but <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's been, it's been a very interesting experience just seeing how different places react to things. Some places are really just like, Hey, you know what? I'm a one man show anyway. Yeah. And I'm, I call the shots here. I'm going to, I'm going to shift into something totally different. So there's, there's been some creativity, which has yeah. been beneficial to, to our business and other businesses that carry similar products, but it has not been, uh, it hasn't been great. Uh, I will say that. Yeah. Props to national tax agency for allowing restaurants to essentially get a license for alcohol sales for carry out for um to be able to you know sell bottles they don't have you know a regular license so they're selling it at you know you know regular you know retail or um restaurant pricing you know they're mm -hmm. pouring glasses and selling them for the same you know prices that you're used to paint at a restaurant so there's you know there's of course challenges there but they you know, almost immediately they made that decision and, and opened up those channels and they basically created a license that restaurants or bars or places could apply for that would be good for six months from the date of, from the date that they were granted that license to be able to sell um, directly there. And so all of a sudden you started seeing um, not just restaurants trying to come up with ways to integrate the sales of sake and shochu, you know, into their takeout delivery menus um and sort of what their offerings look like there um but also um from the producer side as well as the um distributor side they had to figure out what kind of products are actually needed for that there was no precedent for that right mm -hmm. you know um so what sort of products do we bottle do we package do we ship do we send what is needed you know and so there's a lot of real sort of rapid um, prototyping and sort of experimentation that was happening um, over a few months was what do, what does that look like if all of a sudden um, this yeah is I'm, I'm really curious what did you guys notice uh, you know anecdotally what did you observe in terms of difficulties or success stories in you know with this new licensing and and people bringing in more sake what did you see unfortunately and I'm sorry about that but I actually haven't bought much sake from uh, from restaurants because I buy my sake from from sake dealers or from breweries directly. So sure. uh, hard to uh, contribute with a personal experience there. But um, if you combine this with what's uh, happening uh, online or, or more of these testing events happening online, I mean, I think we we can expect a shift to a smaller formats in terms of bottles. Mm. Um, and 
John has highlighted that in one of his presentations uh, a few weeks ago, but uh, a number of producers have shifted from Isho Bean, so 1.8 liters, to Young Gobin 720 bottles for part of the production to adapt to the new demand. And, um, and I think we're going to see more and more 300 and 180 bottles going forward. That's interesting. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of what I've seen or what a lot of places have tried to do. Um, some restaurants and places that I saw or spoke with, um, they were getting, you know, producers to actually bottle for them, you know, especially bottle, you know, in smaller volume, um, um, containers or in smaller bottles in those single serving or, um, or even cup sake, you know, one cup type style or things of that nature. But at the end of the day, it sounds like, it sounds like the awareness around that just being an option for the takeout experience is still so low that people weren't super um, respondent to the offerings in general. Um, and then the other problem that it sounds like a lot of places ran into is just quality or the impression of quality. Um, places that were forced to you know, re-bottle things or if they were opening things up and repackaging or serving, just all of a sudden um, quality control started to become an issue. And so while it's been welcomed by a lot of folks, it sounds like, same with, you know, you, Sebastian, those who realize that they have access to product through other places, um, it, at the end of the day, after experimenting, tend to kind of lean back in that direction. Um, it's just kind of sourcing the product themselves um, as opposed to relying upon um, the restaurant to do so. Yeah, I mean, this, this time has been an opportunity to, to, to try new things, at least. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, it's different in the case of, uh, an, I mean, it's different from uh, a natural disaster where people are need to react um, and they become uh, extremely busy with finding finding solutions to a to a crisis that is hitting them uh, here at least uh, they ha there is time or there has been time for reflection and um, and thinking about innovation so every a lot of what we've seen remains anecdotal but some of these things the innovation that we've seen may actually translate into uh, evolutions Absolutely, absolutely. Just to kind of, you know, wind things down here. Um, yeah. and so I'm sort of curious to get your positive outlook um, based on kind of your experience and things that you've seen. What's got you optimistic um, for the, uh, the coming months as we move into, it's going to be sake brewing season here before we know it again. It's going to be harvesting season first and, and then brewing season. Um, and then, you know, before we know it, it's going to be 2021 and there will be, you know, uh, ideally, a, another Olympics or an actual Olympics and all these other things that are still coming down the pipe. What's, what's got you optimistic at, at the moment after kind of seeing the flow of things? No, I think you, 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 you just said it. I mean, it's, it's about, uh, all the small innovations that, that, that we've seen and how some of them. Uh, will um, will turn into uh, new products, new ideas, new channels, uh, new ways of doing things. 
And the second thing is um, the sense of, of community, a community of, of, of sake lovers uh, who have used that time to um, maybe get to know uh, players or actors better um, through online events of, or otherwise. And so basically an, in, an increase in the overall knowledge about, about the industry as well, I think. Mr. Pellegrini, how about you, sir? Mm, I want to I try and say something that's a little bit different from what Sebastian said, because he kind of encapsulated many of my ideas. You stole my idea, Sebastian. Yeah, but um, I mean, Justin started with that. <laughs> um, I, I think I'm, I'm going to go back to what I, what I was saying a little bit, uh, or at least it was commented on it early on earlier. I think that there's been a phenomenal, uh, very, very quantifiable expansion of everybody's social and professional circles as a result of this. And I only see good things coming from that. There's going to be a lot more collaboration moving forward. It's not going to be easy but people are putting their, their time, their energy, and they're also gambling, I think, in the right ways. I think people are, are seeing where the risks are, and they're, they're doing things to counter that, which they wouldn't have done uh, last year. And even though, honestly, a lot of the risks haven't changed, to be perfectly honest with you, but now there's just been this sea change in people's attitudes and the mindset and the way that people approach problems. And I see that as one of the most inspiring things that I've come across in, in the kokushu industry since I've been in Japan. So it's been, I see it as very exciting. And I'm very clear-minded clear about the challenges ahead, but I love how people are collaborating. I can't wait to see what comes next. Yeah. Going forward, it's not just the sake industry or the shochu industry, it's you know us as, you know, a beverage industry, you know, where do we sit in there and how do we, you know, how do we address these issues, not just siloed off, but, um, but together. So hopefully it will really help raise awareness um, to the beverage and to the categories as well. Um, Imada-san, do you have any last words that you would like to, to chime in or share? Or is there anything that you would like for us to mention on tape or anything? Yeah. Well, may I uh, make a comment too? Please. Two, two comments on here. But the first comment I would like to say is about the difference between sake and chochu situation. Yeah. About the con how they are consumed, uh, consumed in a daily life. Yeah. Shochu's production was not as much damaged as sake, I think. Shochu is more consumed at home to, in, as a commodity compared to sake. And sake is pretty much dependent on the, the restaurant and bars, especially and especially the small breweries are pretty much dependent on a, on a restaurant. So for, for them, the COVID situation hits them pretty bad, badly. And they have a very big problem as to the, the, the planning of the production for the next year and the, the, the rice they're, they're gonna plant. <laughs> But for a big breweries, you know, as Mitya-san said, the big breweries are more uh, based on the, 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 the commodity market. So they're not too much damaged compared to the small breweries. So that's the situation. And the situation in Shochu is more to that bigger 
are very inside. And another comment is about the, 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 the temporary license you mentioned about. It. There are many, there are many applications for that temporary license actually. More, it's about 25,000 or so, right? Yeah, 30, uh, uh, almost about 30,000. You know, and and, and uh, National Tax Agency did a good job this time to to license quite fast. They were very mm. fast. I was shocked. Yeah, this time I was I was shocked too. Yeah. But about the license, that the biggest pro problem about the license is that the restaurants buy sake or shochu from the retailer shop. So so the so the price is pretty different. You know, you yeah. have to pay usually double or triple at the restaurant compared to the retail yeah. shop. So if you're smart consumers, you never buy any products from the restaurant for the you know triple price compared to the retail price. So it's not a good idea for the restaurant people to think about selling it by bottle. You mentioned, you mentioned uh, about the small bottling, small size bottling, that's fine. But <clears throat> the problem about that is that the restaurant and bars usually don't have much space to, sp and if you make it, it into small bottles, it you know needs more lots of space, so they don't want to do that either. Especially refrigerated mm -hmm. products, if you have a hundred right. tiny bottles rolling around that's in your fridge, that, yeah. that's too 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 much for them. So the only way they can make use of the license is to 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 you know pour it into small uh, you know pet bottles and or any other kind of things and sell yeah. it and sell different, very uh, unique or rare uh, and pasteurized type of things. That's the only way they can make use of that license. And there are several restaurants who, that do, who did that, but there are not many cases because it's too troublesome for them to do new things for them. That's my uh, understanding about that. Sort of what I've seen as well too is the, the yeah. restaurants even not just with sake just shifting to takeout and delivery mm -hmm. I mean it's a different business you know? <laughs> you know it's a completely different business so it's mm -hmm. you know your restaurants are really having to you know restructure yeah. their operations from the ground up you know yeah, and learn a different business and it's just been really really demanding. Usually restaurant and bars are not don't need any license to sell their products. So they usually buy sake from the retailer shop. So it, it has to be more expensive. You know, mm -hmm. in, the, in the States, they say they have the same level license so they can buy products from the wholesalers for the same price. So the, the price of the restaurants are not as expensive as in Japan compared to the retailer shop. The consensus at this point seems to be that there's still room to explore what that what that mm. could look like or what that maybe should look like. But again, but I, I love I love the idea of uh, yep. being able to go to a restaurant and buy a whole dinner or a whole lunch and receive a, a selection of bottles by the restaurant's sommelier mm -hmm. or or. Kizakeshi or Kondakeshi, if it's one sake. Yeah. Is the instructions are how to warm it up. I, I definitely agree with that. I, I love the idea. And so are we going to be, are they going to be able to translate that into a real offering, a real product? I mean, I, I don't know, but this yeah. is really exciting. Yeah, I, I think that there is a, that kind of needs in a consumer side for the restaurant. So mm. 
they oh, should absolutely. they should think think about doing that. They should work it out. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen I've seen that a little bit in the in some some of my favorite show two places down in Kyushu. They've started, um, and these are these are izakaya, basically, and they've they just they couldn't have as many customers, so they're like, okay, customers, come in. Here's a here's a little bottle. Fill it with whatever you want. Seven hundred mm -hmm. yen. You know, and so you could go in there and just have, and they would let you sample everything. So it was a lot of fun. You know, mm -hmm. you go in and you get, oh, I want, how about this one? I've never tried that before. And they'll give you a little sip. You're like, oh, that's good. Oh yeah, I'll take one of them. And then, you know, pour it in there. <laughs> they'll label it for you by hand. Uh, it, was, it was good. You know, yeah, so yeah, there were, I, I have some friends who, who made money that way for a while. I think so. Yeah. I'm sorry. I say, it if was, you can it turn it into a, you, an enjoyable experience that provides, you know, opportunities for, discovery that's accessible within that format yeah. there within you know of having that space and doing that all of a sudden it becomes a pretty attractive option gentlemen um thank you for making time thank you justin goodbye hey, thank you and that is a wrap on our two-part special looking at the realities of a covid influenced world on the present day of sake there's a very good chance that we'll actually revisit this topic maybe a year from now to see how things have played out if you happen to find yourself with a free moment, please do rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts or whatever service it is that you enjoy Sake on Air. You're also welcome to follow along with us on social media at, at Sake on Air. We'd just really like to thank all of our listeners for sticking with us through these trying times. Take care and be safe out there, everyone. We'll see you again in another two weeks. Until then, come by. Sake on Air is made possible with the fantastic support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and under normal circumstances is broadcast from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in the heart of Tokyo. The show is a co-production between Potsuke Productions and Export Japan with editing and audio work by Mr. Frank Walter.